Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what real-life anti-hero do you think should get a film? So, I'm kind of going light, you know, quote-unquote light with this answer, mainly because I'm not going with, like, a historical figure in, like, you know, the textbook taught in school sense. I'm going with a film uh, persona that I think would make for quite the interesting and uh, biting, scabrous film. Very, very thorny figure. Not a typical, you know, cradle-to-grave biopic. I'd kind of want almost a one crazy night kind of almost fear and loathing in Las Vegas type movie about this guy making one movie or doing the fucking Steve Jobs thing where it's like three different movies, but all three movies feel like fucking fear and loathing. I want to see a movie made about Sam Peckinpah because that is a guy with an absolutely insane background who is an absolute maniac. Most people would consider a monster, but there's also a soft tenderness to him as well. And a poetry to his movies, even his nastiest movies. There's this weird beating heart of like a boy who's just, just given up who was once the most optimistic little boy in the world and is now just filled with absolute cynicism and nihilism and tequila. And I just, I really want to see someone take a stab at like a real artistic, entertaining, just descent into madness. That is Sam Peckinpah. So uh, the figure I'm thinking of has, I believe had many movies made about them but only from a particular time. If you go back to uh, a certain era, Mickey Mouse's first released film is Steamboat Willie, but the first film produced for Mickey Mouse is a silent film called Plain Crazy. And it's all about how Mickey Mouse, like every young man of the time, wants to become a pilot because he has incredible admiration for the most celebrated man in America at the time, Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh was one of our biggest celebrities in the 1920s and 1930s. He was hailed as a great American. The spirit of St. Louis was talked about all the time. Like, everybody knew Charles Lindbergh. He was on every magazine cover. And I'm certain, you know, that there are plenty of films from the time about the great aviator Charles Lindbergh. He was hailed as a hero. You know, Tom evoked Steve Jobs before. That was the thing. Like, he was just a name. And then... In the 1940s, he very publicly supported the Nazis, and he proved himself to be a terrible, monstrous, racist, an anti-Semite, just a a shining example of fascism. And even though I feel like in elementary school we were maybe taught a little bit about Charles Lindbergh, especially in the last 10, 20 years, his virulent racism, bigotry, uh, just the monstrosity that that he was as a man has truly come to light. I, I think it would be fascinating to see a film that kind of reckons with, 
inarguably, he was treated as an American hero, and then he was awarded medals by the Third Reich. He is a fascinating contradiction in terms of uh, America's sense of rugged individualism and how that backfires into fascism. So I would love to see a film that, that fully reckons with the man Charles Lindbergh beyond, you know, some of the historical fiction that has come out since. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we're discussing one of the few films that was inducted in the registry its first year of eligibility. Richard Newby joins us for 1980's Raging Bull. Our guest today is a writer for The Hollywood Reporter and Fangoria, and the author of, and I'm going to do this late night talk show style and hold it up, the author of We Make Monsters here. I have the book right here. Our guest is Richard Newby. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And thank you for being, doing such a visual bit on a audio format. Mike, good job. This is why you're the host. <laughs> Look, I've always wanted to do that. Like, you know, every time a late night host would do like the, oh, our guest today has a new book and a blah, blah, blah. I've always <laughs> wanted that. And uh, I don't have the charisma to host late night. So, you know, I can I can do an audio medium and I'll just make it work. But on that note, you know, we make monsters here uh, as your book. You're also you've written for Hollywood Reporter Fangoria. You are a uh, perennial presence online writing about film in and, and pop culture in all its forms and also uh, getting into many, many dust ups about uh, comic book movies online. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Who, who, who amongst us hasn't? <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I, I that's part of why I, uh, you know, uh, Richard, I've been a big fan of yours. And part of that is the way you talk about film. And that's not to say that, you know, this is not to say that you can't be critical of a film or not like a film. But one thing I like about the way you talk about film most times is that you seem to enjoy the medium of film <laughs> and you <laughs> seem to understand that this should be fun and that we like going to see movies. And it's something we talk about on this show all the time. You know, Tom, you could probably uh, play a drinking game on the show of how many times Tom goes, this is supposed to be fun. But <laughs> it is yeah. like we started this show because we felt like too many podcasts out there, movie podcasts are about kind of like, well, let's take a look at the canon and say why they're wrong. And bah, 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 bah. and it's like, I don't know. I, some, as much as I love genre films and, and horror films and all that, and we do enjoy those, you know, we all enjoy that. There's a line between like the guys who go, you should actually also appreciate the works of Carpenter and Cronenberg and the kind of guys who go, actually, Slumber Party Slaughter 6 is better than Citizen Kane. It's like, <laughs> all right, man. But so, you know, that's something I've always enjoyed about the way that you approach movies and talk about movies, that there's just... There's a genuine appreciation for the medium and, and the way you talk about it, which I think is so great and so refreshing. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. I think, you know, growing up, I, I watched a lot of, you know, black and white horror movies. And so, like, I always had this interest in, in early films. You know, I watched all the Universal stuff. I watched a bunch of Godzilla movies. 
So like, even though I've always been interested in genre, like it's always come from a place that's also interested in, in film. And so like, as I started developing, you know, as I, as I got into high school and, you know, more interested in, in, in directors, like I started watching, you know, entire filmographies of, you know, these famous filmmakers specifically, you know, of the new Hollywood era, along with, you know, all the comic book stuff that was going, you know, happening at the time and coming out. Um, so yeah, I've always just tried to have like a, a healthy balance between like my, my, my nerdy, you know, film loves and also my, my educational, uh, while also, you know, fun films. And so that, that leads us to, you know, talking about new Hollywood, that leads us to, you know, what we're talking about today. Uh, I asked you to come on the show. I was very glad you said yes. And I sent you over the list of films and you selected Raging Bull. I'm curious. I mean, obviously it is one of the, one of the big ones on the list. An interesting thing about the National Film Registry is starting this year and onward, they tend to have a uh, a healthy mix of the true canonical classics and the films that don't get talked about as much. You know, we just did back-to-back episodes on Perry Lorenz's The River and uh, Maya Darren's Meshes of the Afternoon. And now we're talking about Raging Bull. And I don't want to say that there's a massive difference, but uh, Tom and I's uh, Italian baby boomer fathers have seen one of those three films. And I think uh, <laughs> folks can guess which one that is. Um, so it isn't, yeah. you know, a, a, it is an appealing one from that regard, but I, what was it about that particular title on that list that stuck out to you? I mean, I, I love Scorsese. Um, the first, so the first R rated movie I actually saw in a the theater was the departed in high school. Uh, and I, I was not 17 yet. I worked at the movie theater so I could go see it. Uh, <laughs> earlier and it just like it blew me away because i'd never heard like that kind of language in a film before uh and so like part of it was just like it was so shocking because i felt like i was seeing something that was like so like illicit and and forbidden in that way uh and so i just like started going through you know so much of, of his filmography uh and getting dvds from the library and so that you know that's what attracted me to to raging bull but also i just i i really like boxing movies um and I've talked about Rocky and, and, and Creed on, on Twitter. Those are some of my favorite movies. So that aspect also uh, definitely appealed to me. All right. So uh, when, just as uh, I think we were all the, basically the same age when The Departed came out, uh, did you have the same experience at the end where everyone in your theater almost like jumped out of their seats, shitting their pants at the uh, yeah. blood yeah. that happened? <laughs> that was one of the great. One of the great theatrical moments uh, of my life was seeing that movie, not knowing what was coming because I hadn't seen Infernal Affairs yet, and just being like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck! <laughs> and everyone around you just, like, go, just losing their goddamn minds that every single star of the movie just gets assassinated yeah. in five seconds. I was I was shook. Like, it just it broke, like, all the rules that I kind of expected from that kind of a movie. Uh so yeah, it just it made me a huge fan of of uh, Scorsese after that, and then so you know, Goodfellas, uh, Goodfellas followed that, and Casino, and Raging Bull, and Taxi Driver, and I just kind of you know kept going through uh, you know the the rest of his classics, uh, and then you know later on I, I found some of his his hidden gems like After Hours and his docs like The Last Waltz, but um, I've seen every movie that he's done uh, at this point. Um, and yeah, I, I just, you know, I think he's, he's an incredible filmmaker and also an incredible personality. 
Now, you said you've seen all of them. I'm just going to set Tom up for this. It's a running thing for us. Uh, Richard, what did you think about Kundun? <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. It's it's not my favorite of his of his religious uh <laughs> epics. Uh that one I actually we watched that in school. Uh really? I went to a a Catholic school uh, and we had a world religions class. So that was the setting in which I I'd watched that one. Um but I think uh in, in terms of his religious films I think that uh The Last Temptation of Christ oh, yeah. and Silence are the superior ones. <laughs> I I just evoke Kundun well, because uh, in I don't know have you have you've watched The Sopranos I assume right Richard? I have not. Okay. In in The Sopranos <laughs> okay. the the funniest line in the world is that they have uh, Michael Imperioli's character at one point sees Martin Scorsese, and he has one chance to yell something at Martin Scorsese, and he chooses to yell, "Hey, Kundun, I liked it. <laughs> Kundun, I liked it." It's the hardest I think I've laughed at anything. <laughs> Just that opinion. Um, well, you so know, I mean, I, it's it's fitting because The Sopranos is a mob show, and Scorsese only makes mob movies, and obviously, Kundun is one of the great that's mob true. movies. That's true. That's if you are on Twitter, you know Scorsese only makes. Uh, yeah, mob that's, movies. that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, then again. I mean, does, to be he, fair, he did he did make the Last Temptation of Christ, where all the apostles were like wise guys <laughs> on the corner, just like as Henry Hill's watching them. Like, there's there's a literal like mob hit in the Last Temptation of Christ, which I'm just like, okay, so I mean, there is an argument to be made that this is every, a mob movie. <laughs> every every non Jesus character in the Last Temptation of Christ talks like when they would bring up a random Long Islander to do the readings at church, and it would just be, you know, how like on Easter you just get like. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, like, that's kind well, of everybody, it. Everybody, everybody <laughs> that's not Willem Dafoe in that movie talks like they're calling into WFAN to talk about <laughs> the Juan Soto trade or whatever. Like, uh, it's great. Listen, I love that Harvey Keitel doesn't even try. Hey, Jesus, I got what you oh, you fucking want me to betray you now? It's I, great. Listen, I, it's I need to I need to emphasize the again. It's now more than ever. I need to emphasize that, uh, weirdly, uh, recording order, this is the second time we'll be talking about uh, Italian-American stereotypes in film, because we just did It's a Wonderful Life. But um, but I, I will you know, clarify up top for our listeners, Tom and I, both Italians, so when we uh, giggle at some of the expressions in this film, we can, we can do that. Uh, it just feels really cool. We'll, we'll, we'll um, get into how deeply we'll into... personal this movie is for we'll... at least my side of the, the Italian-American block, because Mike's we'll... family comes more from a blue, a whiter collar yeah, version. Yeah. Where my, my... my family is more like the family in the movie that beat Raging Bull at the Oscars. But, you know, anyway, we'll get yeah. to that later. <laughs> Uh, before we get more into what we think about Raging Bull, let's talk about what the Library of Congress had to say. Uh, here's what the National Film Registry says about Raging Bull. Hard-hitting is the character. Hard-hitting is the film. Martin Scorsese painted a visceral portrait of prizefighter Jake LaMotta, and Robert De Niro fleshed out that portrait, literally and figuratively. De Niro famously gained 60 pounds for the role, donned a prosthetic nose, and walked away with an Academy Award. De Niro adroitly captures the fighter's success in the ring and contrasts it to a personal life full of rage, jealousy, and suspicion, which ultimately left LaMotta destitute, alone, and seeking redemption. Scorsese's vision is expertly executed by Thelma Schoonmaker's editing of cinematographer Michael Chapman's footage. So that's what they had to say, plus more talk about the Oscars. So you said, Richard, that you sought this film out after seeing The Departed, right? That was... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so sometime around maybe like 2007, 2008? 
Yep, yeah, high school, probably, yeah, 2008. Tom, what was uh, what was your first time seeing Raging Bull? If you remember, or perhaps it was just, you know, maybe that's one of those oh, films I mean, you just <laughs> inherited. I, I saw it at the, uh, the age-appropriate time of sixth grade. Um, uh, it was that era where I finally started getting into movies and asking my father, like, oh, have you seen The Godfather? Have you seen casino or raging bull all that stuff and he's like yeah i got him on tape uh, let me show you him and then you know i watched raging bull and you know laughed my ass off because i'm just like hey that's my family <laughs> uh it's really some truly accurate italian american low-life behavior in this movie maybe the most accurate portrayal of blue-collar italians at least of that era because i like a lot of these guys aged into my uncles and like great uncles or whatever and i see them at family events and parties and whatnot and it's it's literally the, like exactly the same it's so fucking funny <laughs> uh, tom i'm gonna give a quick note just for for the sake of the program just say whatever you want but just make sure that whatever you say the statute of limitations is up on it that's all i'm asking is just make sure oh, listen everything i'm saying is uh hypotheticals it's fun <laughs> it's i mean like it's literally all in, it's all in character well, i mean I mean, like, literally to the point where I was re-watching it the other day with the uh, gorgeous 4K Criterion release. Mm, Unbelievable yeah. work they did. The scene where they're at the pool and he sees uh, Vicky for the first time and the mobsters are, like, trying to impress her and Jake Lamont is like, oh, look at them big guys talking about their big plans to make the look like they're big guys to her. And, I'm like, that's literally how my dad talks about the connected guys at, like, weddings he goes to. Oh, look at them fucking big guys, big tough guys. Eh? Yeah, fucking oh. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, my dad's literally Jake Lamont. This is insane. <laughs> now, I have to ask, because I, I saw it maybe in high school, I think, because uh, they had just put out the anniversary DVD. And I will admit, and I want to float this to you guys as well, I, I have come to love this movie. If you said, like, is, what's your favorite Scorsese movie? This isn't it, but that's also kind of like saying, you know, what's your favorite Michelangelo and not saying, I don't know, the Sistine Chapel. There's enough great work there. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to say. But we all saw this, you know, around kind of the same time. I'll fully admit I didn't, air quotes, get it the first time I watched it. Um, and I was wondering if if you guys feel like it is a movie that, like, the first time you got it, you fully... First time you saw it, you fully got it. Or it's something that, like, with me, with age, and as you get older, you come to appreciate parts of it more. Um, I mean, listen, I just... I just, I mean, I just admitted I watched it when I was in the sixth grade, so obviously I'm not going to say I completely got it. You know, my viewing a few days ago was definitely a little more illuminating than it was when I was uh, watching it in between sessions of Grand Theft Auto 3. But I do think because I come from a world that is so accurately depicted in this one, I did kind of get a lot of what it was going for. And I did immediately love the movie. I mean, it was my first email. It was a raging bull, like whatever. Uh, I still, your still, Twitter I handle. Mean, still my Twitter handle, just cause I am a, uh, creative list goon. <laughs> uh, I just think, yeah, I mean, I, th I think because at the, you know, like I had the connection to it and there is so much to it that it's such a watchable movie. It's like if taxi driver was funny, like it is maybe the most watchably horrible movie you'll ever see because it is a lot funnier than you you remember it. But it, 
I mean, I don't know, Richard. What 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 was you, what do you think? Because uh, I don't know. I, I I feel like the outlier here, getting to it uh, before I hit puberty. <laughs> I mean, I definitely I I really enjoyed it the first time that I saw it, and I think you know again like part of that just came from like the language of it. Like I'd never heard like so many like fucks in a movie, you know, before, and so like that was part of like what made it exciting and like what gave it a kind of a kind of energy. I definitely, I don't, you know, think I, I fully understood it uh, thematically. I had not seen um, On the Waterfront at the time. I seen it, saw it later in, in college. Um, but, like, rewatching it, like, with having seen that film, and, you know, his, his, his monologue at the end definitely reframed uh, certain things for me. But also just, like, in terms of uh, of the violence, you know, in the film, I think that, you know, really, when you're first kind of discovering R-rated movies, you know, there there is, like, a certain, like, kind of, like, fascination with the violence, but also just, like, a, a giddiness through which you look at it that I think, you know, colors some of it where it's not as, as horrible as it, you know, as, 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 as it seems when you're, when you're older. And I think, like, watching it this time, like, some of the especially like the way that like they treated their wives and stuff. It was just like, Oh man, like this is, this is pretty terrible uh, in terms of their, in terms of their behavior. And I definitely see more of their flaws and it's less of like, uh, it's less of a, a hero story. You know, it, it's less of like a, an underdog story for me. There are definitely like aspects of that, but it's definitely like, he's, he's, he's not a great guy. And I think, I, I see that a lot more clearly now than I did when I was, you know, 15, 16. Well, yeah, because it's funny because, like, it's framed like you, if you watch it, like, the first time you watch it, or if you're young, like me, or whatever, like, it's framed like a tragedy that this guy gets to the top and fucks it all up and ends up in jail and all that. But right from the jump, this, the movie is immediately just like, yeah, no, he's a bad guy. This is only going to go to bad places for him because he's not a guy who's about to get corrupted by this world he's in. He's perfect for this world because he's a bad guy. And there's yeah. really only one outcome for him, which is, again, another one of those canny things that makes Scorsese so much more impressive than a lot of other filmmakers is, is he inherently sees that if you just arc it out, it is a tragedy, but it's not because of who's at the center of your movie. Well, I think that one thing that I, I like about this film a lot, and I've come to appreciate, uh, I think about it, Raging Bull, I think about in the same terms as I sort of think about, and I may have said this on the show before, but like when we were in seventh grade, we read The Great Gatsby, and I thought it was one of the most boring books I'd ever read. And then I revisited The Great Gatsby in college, and appreciated as one of the great American novels. And the big difference is that is a book written from a place of regret. And you can't really have regrets when you're a seventh grader, <laughs> but you can by the time you're in college. And I think Raging Bull is the same way, which is that when you watch it, if you are young or if you are maybe kind of, you know, inexperienced in the world, it is easy to watch it and be perplexed by it because it is, you know, as Tom notes, Jake Lamont is a bad guy from the beginning. You know, we, we, well, we first see him angelic in the ring, uh, dancing to the intermezzo song, you know, boxing to the intermezzo song. 
then doing his uh, his nightclub monologue. But then when we cut to him young, because we see him old and fat, we see him at the end, toward the end of his life, and you know, in a state of downfall. And a normal biopic would cut to them young, and we would get to see them kind of in their prime. And instead, we cut from old fat Jake LaMotta to Jake LaMotta in the ring, getting the absolute shit beat out of him. And then when he loses the match, Scorsese is doing absolutely nothing to romanticize boxing, which is a sport he never cared about. Scorsese admits he was not a boxing fan. It never appealed to him that we see pretty much everything ugly about the world at once. That that scene, the riot after the boxing match, we're looking at violence, chairs are being thrown, racial epithets are being tossed out, a woman is being trampled, blood everywhere, all while an organ tries to kind of bring civility to an inherently uncivilized event. And even after that, we then cut to Jake at home being terrible to his wife. There's not one moment at the start of this movie where he is, where Marty is even giving you a reason to sympathize with this character. So I think even cut to that, it's like the, him meeting Vicky like that, where he's courting Vicky for the first time. Like, like you said, another biopic, it's like, Oh, it's his, the woman he's going to marry and blah, blah, blah. This would be like a nice romantic thing, but no, it's played predatorily he's Mm -hmm. like a shark who smells blood in the water and um i made this joke to mike while i was watching it that it's funny that 1980 this movie doesn't uh sidestep the fact that its protagonist was going after children uh when uh we just got an elvis movie that completely sidesteps that and says she's a full-grown woman and she is perfect for our lord and savior elvis presley du decenti croissant um uh, but like you get nothing no like mike says you get no pause on how utterly repugnant this man is and the only kind of grace you see from him is in the ring and that's still in the context of beating the ever-loving shit out of other human beings but what i love about it too and this is something i i complain about a lot i am not a big fan of you know tom knows i rant about air quotes tough guy movies and that's not just like guys, you know, who feel no emotions, but I get very weary of movies that are about broken men that seem to just romanticize how broken they are. That seem mm. to just like that romanticize how their protagonists are just guys going, oh, why do I keep getting mad and hitting people? I wish I could control it. And they're so romanticizing it. And what Marty does so well in this film, I think, is that Jake LaMotta does recognize that he's not a good person that there's a scene you know when the when the fight doesn't go his way later in the film uh and pesci is talking about well they only gave it to him because he's going off to war and jake has that line where he goes you know i've done a lot of bad things maybe it's coming back to me jake is cognizant of the fact that he can be a monster that he can be a you know an animal at times but that the beautiful thing about this movie is that marty depicts that but he never forgives that. He never he never lets him off the hook for his actions, and if anything, makes certain to show us the fallout of his behavior and the the cruelty that he exhibits to people who never n- rarely do anything to deserve it. There's a beauty to the fact that 
Kathy Moriarty's character is never actually seen like air quotes cheating on Jake. You know, she goes out to the club, but you know, the whole exchange, it's just him getting jealous about the way she greets people or the way that he's losing. It's, it's, there's never a sense of like, there's never a sense of trying to justify Jake, which I think is really great. The film that I kept thinking of when I was watching it this time, um, in terms of similarities, was uh, it, it, The Wolf on Wall, of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's a, a very similar situation where you have a protagonist who is an absolute monster and irredeemable. And I think that Scorsese is making that very clear. But at the same time, you know, if you're watching it as a, at a certain age, there is, you know, a certain romanticized notion in that lifestyle of being, you know, macho, of being, you know, wealthy. And I think that, you know, as you guys were saying earlier, the more life experiences you have, I think that the more clear Scorsese's vision becomes in terms of, of looking at who these characters are. Uh, and I remember, you know, when that film came out, there was a lot of criticism about how he was, you know, justifying uh, the behavior seen in, seen in that movie. Um, and, and what Jordan Belfort was doing, but I don't think that's the case at all. And, you know, similar to, to here, I think that he's absolutely like rubbing our faces in the vulgarity of, of what we're seeing. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing that in terms of, you know, wealthy, you know, upper class people with, with money, but yet here, you know, we're seeing it in kind of, you know, lower class slums, but it's still just as, as brutal and ugly. And I think un- unforgivable. I think that's kind of the beauty of, marty's movies is that he is maybe the best filmmaker at in in like just getting you into a specific world this these niche worlds that we that most people will never get involved in and kind of being able to show you the allure of how people get involved in this stuff but never once romanticizing it and then by the end pulling the rug out from under you and saying well no like if you didn't get it the prior 95% of this movie, these people are irredeemable monsters and their lives are going to be miserable after this because this is not a good thing that these people are doing. Raging Bull is maybe a little more from the jump showing you what a bad guy Jake LaMotta is, but you know, Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street are probably the two best examples of people not getting the movies because they forget the ending where he, he he does a good job showing you why Henry Hill wants to be in the mob, why Jordan Belfort wants to be a, a Wall Street broker. You know, it's very alluring, all this money and power and the women and all this, blah, blah, blah. But the more it goes on, the more punishing it becomes. We go, how do you keep up with this lifestyle? And then all the bodies they leave in their wake. And then by the end, Henry Hill, you know, he's, I'm just a schnook eating egg noodles and bullshit tomato sauce out in the sticks and Jordan Belfort's hawking bullshit self-help books in Australia or whatever. Like nobody's better at that than Marty, I think of just completely unvarnished showing you a world without ever making it hard to watch, which could have been easy with this movie. Well, I think the other thing, and I'm glad Richard brought up Wolf of Wall Street, because I was thinking about the fact that of the major films that Scorsese has that focus on a monstrous protagonist, you know, I would say Taxi Driver in the 70s, Raging Bull in the 80s, uh, uh, Goodfellas in the 90s, and then obviously Wolf of Wall Street in the 2010s. In those other three films, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, and Wolf of Wall Street, 
the endings of those films are cynical. Marty is very good at having a cynicism. Every one of those kind of has, especially Wolf of Wall Street, but they have a very, like, Bertolt Brecht kind of resolution where in Taxi Driver, we're meant to kind of be horrified at the irony of the fact that he's hailed as a hero despite being a psychopath. Goodfellas ends with Henry Hill looking into the... Well, you know, obviously Pesci shooting the gun, but prior to that, Henry Hill in his suburban home you know, he's got the nice life, but he's still like, ah, but I miss it, though. Wink. And Wolf of Wall Street, the entire time, you know, Jordan Belfort is Mac the Knife in Three Penny Opera, right? Like, he's, you know, he is that roguish figure. What's so interesting about Raging Bull is that while the film shows a lot of darkness, there isn't that same level of cynicism to, there is no cynicism to its ending. It's a much nakedly sadder film, and I think that that's because the main thing about Raging Bull is that it's a self-portrait for the people involved, for Scorsese, for De Niro. Now, obviously, neither of them are boxers, but they both talked about being drawn to this story. And particularly for Scorsese, you talked about this will be my last, this may be my last film. You know, I was making a real mess of my life. Part of what sets this film apart from those other films is that it's not trying to win you over on Jake, but it does it does feel like it's coming from a place of introspection and a place of self-reflection where it, look, uh, you know, uh, neither De Niro nor Scorsese were a heavyweight champion of the world, neither through a fight, neither, none of them did any of those things, but you can tell that for everyone involved in that movie and Thelma too, and Michael Chapman too, everyone involved, that scene where LaMotta is in the prison punching the wall and crying to himself, that means something to every one of the people involved in this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that as you get older and you watch the film, that means something to everyone watching it, too, which I think is the, the real power of this film. Yeah, I, I think also in terms of like that, that ending and him you know, coming to that self-realization, it's so interesting, too, in, in using that that uh brando monologue from from on the waterfront where he's kind of blaming his brother for his problems um you know it's interesting to me especially like seeing it seeing it this time around because you know joey is is in his corner you know for basically all of the movie and the only time that he isn't is you know because he is sick of you know being abused and, and and beat up on and so, you know, and looking at, at where, you know, his, his career went, I, I, I always like kind of think about that scene. Like, is, does he, does he realize that like, this is not his brother's fault? Like, is he drawing a comparison between himself uh, and Brando's character and on the waterfront and saying that like, you know, if my brother had been there for me, you know, I could have been a contender, you know, I would have stayed the champ, you know, and, and there's that, there's that quote that, that, that ends the film, you know, about the, the blind man saying, but it's like, you know, I I don't necessarily think that, you know, Jake is, is able to see clearly at the end. I think he realizes some of it, but I don't, you know, I I don't necessarily think that he fully accepts that where he is, is solely because of his action. It's interesting. You bring up the, uh, I'm glad you brought up the waterfront quote. There's a video essay on the criterion called gloves off where they pointed something out that i never noticed before um and we covered on the waterfront last season but i never noticed which is 
De Niro delivers a line differently than Brando. Marty originally wanted it to be entirely, you know, uh, emotionless. Brando adds a bit of flair. I mean, uh, De Niro adds a bit of flair. But when Brando says that line, he said, you know, the I could have been somebody, I could have been a contender. Brando emphasizes a different word and it changes everything. Brando has the line where he goes, I could have been somebody. And the emphasis is on somebody. And Jake says, I could have been somebody. And they said, you know, the important difference there is that emphasizing been instead of somebody really shows the difference between where those characters are at, where Brando's character went on the waterfront. It's a status thing. It's a, you know, it's a guy who's always been low, who just wanted to get out of that low place. Whereas for Jake, by focusing on been, that he's so focused on the past that he cannot let that go. I could have been somebody. That, that in, as opposed to Brando, who is actually talking to Charlie and actually blaming Charlie, even though LaMotta's doing that monologue directed at a brother, by him emphasizing Bin, that sense of regret in that conveys that Jake may not consciously know it, but he's beating himself up over his decisions and where his life ended up. It was a quote that somebody says in a documentary about LaMotta where they said, you know, Jake LaMotta fights like he didn't deserve to live. And that is a thing I think you feel in Jake the whole time is he just, there's just this, he keeps setting himself up for failure. None of that's more clear than in the final fight with Sugar Ray. I mean, he like it's straight up textual that he's letting Sugar Ray beat him the holy hell out of him because he feels bad whether he knows it or not about what he did to his brother Tommy and I think that yeah if that's the whole movie I think that I think this movie's honestly a lot sadder and maybe a little more cynical than his other movies because I think there is that self-awareness to Jake and I think it is a movie that says even if you're aware of your flaws you can't get out of the way of them until you hit rock bottom and even then maybe you won't get out of it because he's still just desperately looking for attention in these dingy little fucking not even nightclubs they're just little bars where he's desperately just looking for any sort of laughs or attention from the bar flies and the the low lives of the world um so yeah i think uh i think it's sadder somehow and with the what you're saying about the bin, about the regret, uh, I think that all ties into something about Jake that is one of the many things I, I love about the movie is how it juxtaposes how the things that make him great in the ring is the stuff that makes him absolutely useless in real life, which is in the ring, there's tangible results. There is something he's achieving. There is, You know where you are. You know what you're doing. There's no questions about it but outside of the ring he is completely unable to see what's in front of him he's always harping on things that are out of reach or not even happening i mean the you know the beginning of the movie in the kitchen after he's fighting with his wife and pesci comes in what's he start harping on he's never gonna be able to fight joe lewis oh i i got well my little hands on the, i know i'm better than him what's like Okay, but like, and Joe and Pesci's like, what? You're he's a heavyweight. You're a middleweight. What the fuck are you even worried about? And the whole movie is just in the ring. He knows what to do, but outside the ring, oh, my wife's cheating on me. Oh, Joe Pesci, you know Pesci, my brother's doing this. 
the, the world's out to get me, everything. And it's like, no, you're doing this because you are incapable of living a life where things aren't as obvious as they are in the ring. You're either getting punched in the face or you're not getting punched in the face. And life's a lot more complicated than that. Now, I do want to touch on something Richard brought up. Richard, you mentioned uh, how in that monologue when he's doing on the waterfront, Jake is is blaming his brother and, and not realizing it's all his own fault. I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about Pesci's character for a minute because I I think one of the things that makes this film so interesting is I don't know if it's as cut and dry as everything is Jake's fault. I I do look at this the more I watch it, and uh, I don't know about you guys, but I do feel like while Jake is obviously the most destructive force in his life, and there is nothing absolving Jake of his guilt in these things, it does feel like Pesci's character is perhaps, you know, is is not actually providing his brother with the kind of support that is helpful. I don't, it doesn't feel like Pesci's character is is actually serving Jake well, but rather sort of enabling and insulating him, which I think perhaps exacerbates things. But I want to know what you guys think about that. I think that's possible too. You know, I, I keep coming back to the scenes with, uh, with Vicky and he's like, you know, this, 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 this woman's, you know, tearing you apart. She's making you, you crazy. And he, you know, he says, uh, he said, he says something like, uh, you know, either, you know, screw her or leave her, uh, in some sense. And yet I feel that there is, you know, there is, I think a certain justification that Joey allows Jake in terms of, his anger towards towards Vicky and I think like towards you know his, his first wife as well like I think there is and he, I mean he even talks to his his own wife that way when she kind of like offers a suggestion at the table and so I do think that there is like a kind of like insulation and excuse provided to Jake in terms of you know his, his rage and his home life and I think you know perhaps it's perhaps it's because you know, Joey is Jake's corner man, you know, even, even at home, you know, he, he's his corner man in the ring and at home. And I don't think that, you know, just as, as, as Jake, you know, he can't function outside of the ring. You know, I feel similar about Joey's position with Jake outside of the ring. Like he can't be a corner man, you know, in a, in a domestic situation, it doesn't work and it just makes things worse for Jake but I think that you know in the ring you know he is helpful and he is supportive so I just think that you know they they're they're not compatible in the real world I definitely think there's a little bit of that I do also think a lot of it is again this um the way he ignores you in this world of well this is just kind of the way they are they don't really know any better Pesci you get a little bit of a more sense that he's more of a human being even if he treats his wife like shit I think the scene, the first club scene where he's with Vicky after they're married, I think it's after they fight about Janeiro and Pesci's like, oh, take it to the club, you know, make up. And Frank Vincent and those guys are like, oh, look, she's here with that gorilla. He probably beats her. He's probably thrown her a hundred beatings already, which is, I think, very telling in that even in this world with these guys that even mob guys look at him as like, oh, this guy's not in a world where 
you know, there this guy's in a world where he he beaten his wife is definitely like an everyday occurrence. They kind of look down on him, even these guys, these low lives. Um, I do think Pesci's character gets a little. Uh, it's it's you know it's it's a complicated movie. I think J- Pesci's character is doing the best he can because he, he everybody says you can't talk to Jake. There's literally no helping Jake. He's got his head a rock. He does whatever he wants. You know, he even finally agrees to throw a fight to get the championship, and he fucks that up because he refuses to even fall down for the guy. Um, but I just, I think the, I think maybe the most important scene for Pesci's character is that the whole movie, De Niro is freaking out about Vicky. She's cheating. She's cheating. He slaps her around. He's always freaking out and yelling at her. Blah blah blah. And the only time we see Pesci get violent is when he actually sees her maybe doing something wrong. And he doesn't go after her. He goes after Frank Vincent. And in his own fucked up way, he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to protect his brother, his brother's you know honor, his brother's wife's honor. And that he never even tells Jake what happened because he knows what's going to happen to Vicky if, she find, if he finds out. I think it's this weird, complicated, yeah, macho thing. But he's try. He's like the closest in this realm of trying to do the right thing for this fucking maniac. But there's like nobody's ever going to be able to break through to him. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that, Tom, because because I felt that one time watching it, and since then my feelings toward Pesci's character have muddled because obviously one of the quintessential scenes in the movie is the scene where Jake confronts. Pesci with, you know, did you fuck my wife? Did you fuck my that that exchange? And why I one thing that's so interesting is, and Scorsese has pointed this out because of the reactions he got that Pesci never denies it, and in fact does the thing that in another movie a character would consciously do to obfuscate the truth. Now Pesci's character has no problem lying. He has no problem with deception. He actively encourages his brother to throw a fight. He has a scene earlier where he tells him, you lose, you know, you win, you still win, you lose, you still win. Like just, you know, he's, Pesci is all about work and angles. And yet when his brother, the easiest thing in the world, the truly the most, the best case scenario, just at least just say no, because you look so much more suspicious if you don't. But instead he does all that stuff about, oh, what are you talking about? What are you crazy? I see this girl's got you. He's just avoiding the topic. And I'm not, you know, and and then when you think about the fact that, yes, he intervenes with Frank Vincent, but because she's out in public with him, that he's kind of, that Pesci's character is a lot more, I don't want to say Weasley or anything like that, but, you know, he's worried about when he's confronting Kathy Moriarty at the club for being out with Frank Vincent, he's talking about, you know, well, what's it going to do to my brother? What's he going to do to you? This and that. It's about the appearances of it. He doesn't want his, you know, anybody saying his brother's wife stepping out. But also, he doesn't want Jake to have any reason to think that his wife's been stepping out. There's weirdly, you know, the the movie is very smart about kind of putting us in Jake's place of paranoia enough that you can't actually be certain whether or not Pesci and Moriarty have actually had an affair. There's nothing in the movie other than Pesci's non-denial to suggest it, but at the same time, like, some of those lines that Pesci throws out in that scene, I mean, you know, again, we're, we're going to go back to Italian Long Island roots, but 
if if you turned around to a guy and said, hey, did you sleep with my girl? And he goes, you should spend less time eating and more time in the bedroom and you won't have that problem. You're like, oh, I guess he did then. You know, it's, yeah, it's, but it's pretty... again, I think I think it's, again, a little more complicated than that because he doesn't immediately go to that. He's he's hurt, I think, yeah. immediately. He's like, I'm your brother. And you ask me this fucking question. Where, where, why, where do you get off asking me? He actually genuinely looks hurt and then starts again, like a lot of Italian American men we know starts getting pissed off and starts insulting him instead of talking about his emotions and getting to the root of the issue, which again, makes this movie a lot more complicated. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just, you never get the answer. I, I personally think Pesci didn't do it mainly because he's so offended and is so like, so really for Jake. He does everything Jake wants, even if he's got to begrudgingly do it. I don't know. It's, it's again, it's just one of those things that makes everything so wonderfully murky that you know it just every time you watch it it's something new which uh i feel like uh we have to at least mention at some point that this is kind of the specialty of the writer of this movie paul schrader who's uh one of the masters of the complicated and murky ambiguity of uh men in the world and their special niches we just got one last year about uh, a card player who was also a torturer in Guantanamo Bay. Not the most uh, broad characterization, someone that everyone in the world can connect to, but you get such great, beautiful, little, ambiguous details that it feels so much more real that you kind of just finally get into it, which, again, this is, you know, he does this in this. He did it in Taxi Driver. He does it in Rolling Thunder. He, I feel like a lot, uh, as much as this is a Scorsese uh like Coke death dream movie. I feel like a lot of it, we, we do need to kind of get into the Schrader of it all because uh, honestly, in my opinion, I think the best movies Marty's made has been with Schrader. That's just me. Taxi driver, this last temptation of Christ, bringing out the dead um, four of his best movies. But I don't know what uh, Richard uh, Schrader, do you have a history with him? What's your feelings on him and all of that? Yeah, yeah, I've seen, I, you know, I've seen all the ones that he's done with Scorsese, and I've seen the the ones that he's directed, you know, himself, and I think that, you know, he definitely does kind of have these these men with traumatic pasts who are kind of, you know, attempting to, to, to navigate the world and, you know, can't, you know, necessarily manage to, to win. Um, you know, Light Sleeper is one of my favorites of his... Uh, with Defoe, um, you know, that kind of characterization, I feel like comes through in so much of his work where you have these characters who, you know, where they are in life is because of choices that they've made. But, you know, there's also these outside factors that are kind of contributing to, you know, how they see their place in the world and kind of where they fit. Um, you know, I, I very much think that like Schrader's male characters are they're men who are trying to figure out where they fit, uh, and sometimes they 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 jam themselves into into spaces that I I think that you know they don't fit into. You know, they force their way, uh, you know, into spots, and I feel like we see that you know with Jake. Uh, you know, even just in terms of like his career 
as a boxer. Like it's 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 not necessarily that I believe that like Jake is incredibly passionate about you know the the sport and the artistry of it and, and the rules of it. I think it's this violence inside of him, and that's you know the outlet where he can try to fit in. He doesn't fit in perfectly, but he tries to force himself in that space you know, to, to see, you know, if if he can, you know, fit there, if he can make something out of his life within that context and, you know, he can't entirely. And I think that that's something interesting that Schrader has kind of explored throughout his filmography as both a a, a writer and director, um, you know, of trying to, you know, force these, these very specific types of men into spaces where they don't particularly belong, but try to thrive in. He he has a Calvinist upbringing, but he's his his movie his uh, stories are very. It's a, there's a reason why Scorsese, the Catholic, is connected to them so much. Is that they're all, they seem to be all about men uh, trying to seek redemption through bloodshed in some way, shape, or form. I mean, in Taxi Driver, it's a literal massacre. In this one, it's literally Jake letting himself get beat to a bloody pulp to try to seek redemption. Uh, you know, that's kind of like the thread. And I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's one of the things that makes these two guys work so well together is these, they, they, they both feel like in their movies, that's, there's a personal thing of they are men in these specific worlds, Marty and Paul, it's that they're filmmakers that they don't necessarily know how to quote unquote act in the real world that they don't feel like they fit, which is why Marty a lot, not always, but Schrader all the time is making movies about men in these hyper specific fields of work that kind of puts them on the outskirts of everyday society where they just, they can't fit in. And um, yeah, I think, you know, and just uh, to the point you made about Jake, not really necessarily caring about uh, the sport. I think that's, generally true um i think it's all about pride with him you know he wants to succeed on his own terms not on boxing's terms he doesn't want to deal with the mob or all of this he just wants to get in there and beat the shit out of people and he wants people to accept him for that and not the politics that are involved and uh yeah i don't know mike you were about to say well i was gonna say i do want to get us actually to the opposite point you know tom you were talking about schrader and scorsese and how they're always focused on men or they tend to be focused on men uh, we're focused on men, but I do want to talk about someone else who I think is one of the most crucial creative forces in this film, uh, which is Thelma Schoonmaker. Uh, Scorsese's yeah. longtime collaborator as an editor. I think if you were having a conversation about the best edited movies in history, this is towards the top. One thing I want to talk about for a bit is is the actual boxing in the film. Despite the fact that this, oh, yeah. while being one of the greatest boxing movies, it's a movie largely not about boxing. It just happens to have a boxer in it. The creativity with which each boxing scene gets its own unique yep. texture. You know, Richard, you talked about Rocky and how those films are so important to you. And obviously, you know, Rocky Two is happening around the same time. I would say when you watch the Rocky movies, those shoot the boxing scenes the way a boxing fan would want to see boxing shot. Whereas Raging Bull is shot, and in particular edited the boxing scenes shot and edited with zero interest in the sport of boxing or showing boxing fans anything they would want to see so much as it is so interested in using those moments 
to best convey the internal strife of its main character. For sure. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I think that the, the Rocky films I, I consider to be sports films because of the way that they are shot. Whereas I don't think of Raging Bull as a sports film, uh, you know, despite the main character being a boxer, because, you know, the, the scenes are so much centered around receiving punishment. And I think there's, you know, the, the theme in so many of Scorsese and Schrader's movies is theme of like Catholic guilt. And I think that, you know, we see a lot of that come out in the ring where he is, he, you know, he, he does want to beat the shit out of people and he is angry, but I also feel like there is a, a, a guilt in terms of, of, of who he is and like, why am I this way? Which I feel like culminates with him punching the wall and in, in, in the jail. But I think that the way that, you know, Thelma has constructed this film together, you know, it, it, it's very much a kind of, uh, I, I guess, you know, to, to make the comparison, it is something of a, of a crucifixion. It is seeing Jake basically, you know, being brought, you know, near death for, uh, for his sins in some ways. And I think that there's an emphasis on, on not only pain, but on, you know, on broken flesh. And it's not the kind of, you know, I think when you look at Rocky and there's the, you know, whole like cut me mix scene, you know, and, and, and there, there is a certain brutality in that, but I also think that there is, you know, there's a, there's a nobility to it uh, in, in the Rocky films where I feel like there is no nobility. And uh, in, in what we're seeing here, it's a, it's a savagery. There is, you know, an almost, you know, primal, uh, you know, battle happening, I think, between, you know, man and himself, it does feel, yeah, it, it feels like we're, you know, we could be watching, you know, the, the first human beings on earth, cavemen, you know, kind of, kind of beat the shit out of each other. There is no, you know, no sportsmanship or artistry to the fight. And I feel like that's what, you know, the, the, the editing conveys in this. And, you know, it's funny because as much as this movie's not all that focused on the boxing like the Rocky movies are or any boxing movie before or after, they are the best boxing scenes ever shot. I mean, it's like without question, it actually feels like these guys are actually hitting each other and beating each other to a pulp. It's it's probably, I mean, probably it is because Marty shoots it. Uh, in a subjective manner and not an objective manner. You know, Rocky shot like a fucking ESPN, different camera angles. You get the wide shots. It's very cinematic. Where in here, it's just, it almost feels like you're you're in the ring with these guys and the blood is spilling on you when they're getting torn to shreds. And I don't think I've seen a boxing movie since this movie even come close to the subjective view of boxing Creed comes closest, the first one, the way he shoots it just up close and you're basically, the camera never is further away than like waist up in there. Like you're in the ring with those guys. Um, and uh, just because Richard says crucifixion, it I, it just hit me now. Like I think in that final fight with Sugar Ray and he's leaning up against the mm -hmm. ropes in an almost very crucifix way, that was obvious. But the the wounds we really focus on he takes is every time... He gets punched in the face. We get close-ups of blood shooting out of his forehead. Very much like the crown of thorns mm -hmm. tearing Jesus' head up as he's walking with the cross. 
before his own crucifixion. So yeah, uh, there's definitely Jake definitely thinks he's a martyr. He definitely thinks uh, he's he's trying to seek redemption through blood. His absolute pride, even after getting demolished by Sugar Ray, you never got me down, Ray. You never got me down. Well, I think there's also an argument that Sugar Ray, especially in that scene, one thing I kind of love about Raging Bull is, yes, I mean, in the first scene we have, in the first fight, um, the very first fight in the film, you know, and, and Jake is boxing with a black man and and, and Joey uh, throws out some epithets. But there, other than that, like, you know, whereas Rocky obviously gets into that kind of, you know, American sports racial dynamic intensely, it's not just that Sugar Ray is treated, you know, it's not to say that Sugar Ray is treated necessarily with dignity in the film. It's rather that Sugar Ray in particular is, I think, almost deified in the film. When you have those moments, you know, that great moment where all the sound cuts out and he's yep. about to deliver that punishing blow, he's not just filmed like a boxer and he's not filmed with any personality either. It's just that he is filmed like a Greek god or a cosmic force you know he is he sugar ray in that moment is there's especially because you contrast it with jake looking so bloody and beaten sugar ray looks angelic in that moment when he's delivering those blows you know and i think that that's that you know i mean the guy who plays sugar ray i forget the actor's name of him but he's he's so magnetic in those moments he gets I mean, to be on screen but i mean jesus he's he's probably with just one line of dialogue he's probably given the most humanity and decency in the whole movie, which is he's going off to war next week. Yeah. Yeah. All these guys are around the same age as him. They're all war. Yeah. You know, ready. They could all be in the war, but they're all just greedy pieces of shit who stay and keep fighting around the country. Where, whereas Sugar Ray, who has no lines of dialogue, you get no other real information about him other than Jake is the first person to knock him down. And he's about to go to war. So uh, he's definitely in, filmed in an angelic way because he's seems to be the only real force of decency in the entire movie. Also, we should talk a bit about, uh, before we, we wind out, we should talk a bit about Kathy Moriarty's incredible performance in this film. I, she just, I mean, this is what her first, it's her first role. Pesci, I believe, is allegedly the one that discovered her. And there is just something about her and the the way she delivers dialogue, some of the line deliveries she has when she's in the bathroom screaming "Get away!" There's just for some reason the exact tone and pitch of how she says it is so flawless. I mean, let's let's just take a moment to acknowledge. I mean, that's that is one of those incredible debut performances. Oh yeah, without doubt. There's such a maturity too, you know, we we talked a little bit before about the character being, you know, 15 when when Jake meets her. But there is like a a, a confidence and, and maturity that she brings to this character that, you know, I, I think, you know, throughout the film we're seeing so much immaturity from these characters. Like these are, you know, these are children, these are spoiled people, and yet she remains this kind of like even when she's, you know, stepping out and and going to the Copacabana, she's handling herself in a very mature way. And I think like we only see that perhaps break when, you know, after the big fight they're on the they're walking down the sidewalk and she, you know, smacks him over the head. But like for so much of the movie, she is this mature figure that kind of grounds us in all of this, you know, madness that's happening. 
after winning the title and everything, she's the one calmly and trying to get Jake to call his brother and trying to guide him into doing the right thing, which he makes the, the first move, but he doesn't actually talk on the phone. So you get that um, amazing Joe Pesci delivery of your mother sucks big elephant dicks. Um, the way only Joe Pesci could deliver that line. Uh, and then we immediately cut to what, like six years later, he's fucking, he's a fat piece of shit. He's working at a nightclub all night. And all we need, all we need to know is, and of what has happened in that six years is he comes out of the club at six in the morning. She's waiting in the car. Jake, no, for real this time, I'm getting a divorce. Everything's settled. Like go, go the fuck away. And she just drives off. And that's all you need to know is that this beacon of maturity and kind of taking it on the chin, the entire movie has in whatever, I forget the amount of time has finally said, fuck this. I've given this monster enough time. I'm leaving. Now, before we wind down, I want to talk about the bookends a bit. I looked up some information on the song that plays at the beginning, Intermezzo. Interme- when Jake is bouncing in the ring, the first thing we see, that operatic, the that is Intermezzo from the opera Cavalleria Rusticana by Pietro Massiani. A couple things that are interesting about that that maybe weren't intended, maybe were. Uh, Massiani himself, uh, the composer of that opera, was considered kind of a one-hit wonder for this opera and was just chasing that glory ever again, uh, always again, similar to Jake. But where that song appears in the opera is so interesting because the opera itself depicts uh, a twisted love triangle. It's focused on a, on a, uh, a man named, I believe, Turi, Turido, Turidu, and uh, his love affairs with these two women. And one woman is married to another. And it's basically this twisted four person love triangle at the moment when everything is at its worst and uh, the the husband, Alfio, swears a vendetta against, uh, you know, Torito, and these two men who have destroyed these women's lives swear that they are going to uh, destroy one another. Everyone goes into a church. The town square is empty on stage and the orchestra plays the intermezzo. And I think that that's so interesting compared to what we see in the beginning, because in the ring, in that moment, the only time we get to see Jake looking almost angelic as he moves is also the only time he has peace. So similar to where this song that plays appears in the opera, it's the one respite. As for the other bookend, you know, Richard, you touched on it earlier, but I want to get everyone's thoughts. The film ends with a title card quoting the Bible. So for the second time, the Pharisees summoned the man who had been blind and said, speak the truth before God. We know this fellow is a sinner. Whether or not he is a sinner, I do not know, the man replied. All I know is this, once I was blind and now I can see. Now, obviously, after that, it's a dedication to Marty's film professor, and it's it's easy enough to say that that quote is more in reference to Scorsese's professor than anything that happened in the film. But I wanted to start with Richard and then to Tom. What is your interpretation of of that quote in the context of the film and what it means? Yeah, you know, I I had mentioned that earlier with you know in relation to the on the waterfront uh, monologue, and then I wasn't sure if, if Jake really sees you know how he landed in this predicament, you know, where he is performing at these shitty nightclubs for a few people, but then you know after you raise the kind of like 
difference in in the delivery of the Ben and somebody. You know, I'm not entirely sure that he is suggesting that his brother, you know, is the one to blame for his his downfall. You know, I, I think I, I'm wondering. You know, we he 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 has this line. Uh, uh, that's entertainment. And so, you know, part of me wonders if, you know, if, if what he's seeing is kind of, you know, the fact that he never really, I guess, stood a chance to be uh, a champion. He's just, he's just an entertainer. He's just, you know, kind of something, uh, something for people to look at, you know, and, and whether he's, he's kind of realizing that in the end. Uh, you know, and as he's doing these kind of, you know, terrible stand-up shows is that, you know, is this really any different from what he was doing in the ring? Uh, it still seems like kind of a form of, of self-abuse. You know, he's still the same person he is. Like, he looks, you know, different as we kind of talked about. But, you know, I, I'm wondering if he's kind of realizing that, you know, what he's doing in the ring isn't so different from performing for these people who don't really care about him, you know, in these, in these clubs for attention. Tom. Yeah. I think, uh, I kind of said it before, which is, I think it's, it's kind of gives the the movie a little bit more of a sad and cynical edge, which is that all oh, once I was blind, now I can see, I think it's kind of like rubbing Jake's nose in it, which is you knew what you were the whole time and you couldn't get out of your own way. So his whole speech is, you know, and then that title card, I think just gives it this sad, it's almost like Marty's, you know, Marty made this movie because he was killing himself on coke. And it's like, he knew what he was doing. And there's this sort of sadness to this whole endeavor, which is we just can't, you know, humans just can't get out of their own way. Even if we know what our mistakes are and what we're doing and how monstrous we can be, we just, we, we just can't get out of our own way until it's too late. And we've lost everything that we've ever loved, which is, uh, you know, Jake, loses his fighting abilities, he loses his family, he loses his ability to make money, entertain people, blah, blah, blah. And Marty, you know, he thought he this was his last movie. He thought the thing that literally he lived and breathed his entire life was going to be yanked away from him. And I think it gives it a much sadder energy than I think any of his other movies really get to. Now, I have got a different read on that, that quote. I focus on the fact that it's not just the final lines, I was blind, but I can see. It's the lines that come before it. Remember that in the context of this, in, in the Book of John, we're, we're talking about the Pharisees who are always looking for a way to nail Jesus and to, to call him a sinner and to have an excuse to basically throw him on the cross. So they come to this man and they say, you know, they say, speak the truth before God. We know this fellow is a sinner. And the man could very easily say yes. He could say he is a sinner. But he doesn't say yes or no. He refuses to judge. What he says is, whether or not he's a sinner, I do not know. All I know is I was blind, but now I can see. I think, in a way, that is, that is Scorsese's statement as to why he's making the film and why he made the film. It's an answer to all of the people who would say, well, why would you make a movie about somebody this reprehensible? He's a bad guy. He does this. Why does he deserve a movie? He's a bad person. And Marty isn't saying he's not a bad person. He's not even saying he deserves or doesn't deserve sympathy. He is saying that to both him and De Niro, the story of Jake LaMotta meant something. To both him and De Niro, 
they were able to purge and process their own feelings about the people they had hurt. You know, we talked about Marty being having his issues with drugs at the time and and having his issues with his marriage and everything. That he's basically saying, I'm not here to say that uh, that Jake is a good guy or a bad guy. I'm not here to judge. All I can say is that this story, and I think that, you know, in all of our ways when we watch this film, it helps us be introspective as well. Now, as we wrap up, because uh, we, we do obviously have to let Richard go, but we always wrap up talking about the Oscars. Tom, how do you think Raging Bull did at the Academy Awards? Oh, gee, let me think. I wonder if it got nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> uh, all right, so it's it definitely got nominated for Picture and Actor, because I know it lost Picture, and I know De Niro won. Pretty sure I remember that Pesci and uh, Pesci won, or was at least nominated. So I'm going to say it got uh, Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress. Uh, cinematography, I think, uh, and Director. I think Marty got nominated for director, and I—I'll say that's about it. So, like five, six nominations. So it was nominated for best picture alongside *Coal Miner's Daughter*, *The Elephant Man*, *Tess*, and the winner *Ordinary People*. It was nominated for best director, but lost to Robert Redford for *Ordinary People*. Nominated for best actor for Robert De Niro, who won. Nominated for best supporting actor for Joe Pesci, who lost to Timothy Hutton for *Ordinary People*. Nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Kathy Moriarty, who lost to Mary Steenburgen in Melvin and Howard. Nominated for Best Sound, but lost to The Empire Strikes Back. Nominated for Best Cinematography, but lost to Tess. Weird choice. And up for Best Film Editing, which it won. So all those nominations, only two wins. However, I would like to point out that history has been kind to Raging Bull, as that was inducted in the National Film Registry in only the second year of the registry's existence and its first year of eligibility, ordinary people still not in the registry. So, you know, history has been kind to Raging Bull. Richard, I know you have to go, but thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you coming on for this. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. This was a really fun, uh, illuminating conversation. I really enjoyed being on. Uh, You are certainly welcome back anytime, uh, you know, and last but not least, do you have anything you want to plug before you go? I'll just uh, say that my book, uh, it's a collection of uh, horror short stories, is available on Amazon. Uh, it's called We Make Monsters Here. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter, at uh, Richard L. Newby. Um, I'll be covering uh, Nope this week and uh, some Comic-Con stuff. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. And everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration, on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. So mine is is a bit of a one-to-one, but maybe not one anyone would think of. Uh, it's from the same year. It's actually from the same Oscar year. 
in a weird coincidence, uh, that year's Academy Awards, uh, where Raging Bull was nominated, featured two films in black and white where the protagonist yells the phrase, I am not an animal. Uh, a fellow Best Picture nominee that year, uh, directed by David Lynch, uh, produced in part by Mel Brooks. Uh, it's the absolutely extraordinary film, The Elephant Man. For a long time, it was hard to find. I didn't see it for many years because just home video wasn't that available, but now it's gotten a Criterion release and a remaster, which I hope brings more attention to it. The Elephant Man and Raging Bull are both thematically similar insofar as they are both about uh, a man being made a spectacle for his physicality, and yet also you know, the story of John Merrick seeking dignity is so heart-wrenching in such a radically different way. We evoked with Raging Bull the idea of viewing it as a tragedy, but of course, you know, Jake brings so much of it on himself. Merrick brings nothing upon himself in the Elf, and it is just a movie about humanity's cruelty and society's cruelty, which is a theme that David Lynch explores in all of his work, but it has never been so overt and crystallized as it is in The Elephant Man. The Elephant Man is arguably, alongside the straight story, perhaps his most accessible film, but it's him bringing his eraserhead sensibility of, of tension and, and paranoia to this otherwise straightforward story uh, that in other hands would not be nearly as eloquently done. And it's also one of those cases where, you know, this is uh, a year where obviously uh, De Niro deserved to win Best Actor. But when you watch The Elephant Man and you see John Hurt's performance, you go, how the hell did that guy not win? Uh, right up until the point where you see who did win. It's just The Elephant Man is an absolutely extraordinary film. Folks should check it out. And it should absolutely uh, be in the National Film Registry. All right, so me and Mike talked about this before, about how there's a lot of different avenues you could take with this movie and still find, like, one-to-one comparisons and all that. It's one that I think measures up, maybe not measures up, but is in the same ballpark as Raging Bull in its ability to to portray a world of pretty much terrible people. Uh, It's a world of animals and monsters, and everything's bad, and it's very cynical. It's very sad, but there still manages to find a, a bleak humanity underneath it all without ever sacrificing the honesty of the reality of the story it's telling. So I picked a movie of my real world anti-hero I want to see a movie get made out of. I picked a Peckinpah movie, and uh, I'm picking Cross of Iron, a movie he managed to make a movie about a group of World War II commandos for the Germans that manages to never shy away from the fact that these guys are on the German side, but still gives you like, well, they kind of got forced into this, but they're still fighting pretty hard for the bad guy side, but they're still human. There's still something fucked up going on here. There's an amorality. There's a clear eyed look at how war fucking sucks. I, I, I think it's as nasty and cynical and yet poetic, which is what Peck and Pa regularly did and which, Scorsese can delve into pretty regularly as well. I think Peckinpah is one of the great American filmmakers. I think he's truly American. When you say American, that I mean that with, like warts and all for all the darkness that America likes to never talk about. He is kind of maybe the most quintessentially American filmmaker. So I think he needs to be represented a little more in this registry. So I think Cross of Iron is one of his best. 
one of his trickiest. And this is a man who never steered away from a tricky subject. Uh, and I think it actually kind of works pretty well with Raging Bull. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Richard Newby for joining us. Next week, we'll be talking about the first student film inducted into the National Film Registry. Photographer and photo editor Danielle Scruggs is our guest for 1978's Killer of Sheep. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.